I'm not deleting that. We're going with this. All right. Okay. So it's episode 46 of the Hot Isle, and I am Brian Carpenter. I'm one of the co-hosts, and with me, one of the awesome co-hosts. Let me add. I am. Yeah. Yeah. I am the I am the best Robin a Batman could ever have. Oh. Okay. Well, in that case, I'm Brent Piotti, and I guess I'm Batman in that case. Yeah. So uh, we're having a lot of fun with this, and what we're going to do is we're going to split up now, and Brent, you stay home, and I'm going to go off to Drone Nationals, and the U.S. Drone Nationals in New York, and I'm not going to sing that song, and we're going to go interview some people. So we're going to have on a couple of people. One, Josh Bernstein, Vice President of technology for emc code right he's been on before so he's coming back he begged he actually he may have slipped us some money so that i could buy your baby that present that you just got and we also have grant martin from avagant and we're going to talk about the glyph which don't know what it is uh yet but we're going to figure it out but when you see it you're like i've got to know what that is right so super cool stuff there and then finally we're going to talk to somebody else when we get back home after the birthday, but I don't know who that is yet. I'll help you with that. Okay. So we'll figure out who that is and they're coming up as our third segment. So this is totally different, right? This is not like straight up it. It's going to have an it spin. It's going to have a technology spin. We're going to really be talking about how people are getting things out. We're going to talk about some cool things, but if you're looking for like, you know, how to orchestrate your containers, Rewind one episode and we'll be back to kind of normal formatting. But right now let's let's break the format. Let's have a lot of fun with it and let's do this thing. We're gonna get a little nerdy about quads and about personal video gear and about all sorts of different things and about open source. How's that sound? That sounds great. Let's do it. This is awesome. So uh, you know, we're gonna enjoy the crowd noise a little bit here. We're in we're in the outdoors. You might hear some crickets, some lizards, some trucks. Yeah, around. some trucks. We got some forklifts around us, some scissor lifts. I don't even know what a scissor lift is, but I learned that there's such a it's thing. A scissor. And yeah. Lifts in the air. Yeah. Yeah. We're uh, you know you may hear a, like a an, a wing fly by. We'll we'll talk about what a wing is. A drone you, maybe. You, a drone. All those some kind of whining. things. So you hear somebody else's voice, and it's not Brent this time. Um, but uh, we are gonna be talking here to none other than Josh Bernstein. And Josh, remind me, I think your title changes by the day or you make it up one or the other. I make it up as it goes along. No. So um, what, is, what is your title? Uh, I'm the uh, VP of technology for EMC Code, okay. for uh, the Emerging Technologies Division at EMC. That's perfect. And um, what, is, uh, what is it that you do? What do you say you do here? What do I do here? What is my day job? I have uh, four responsibilities. Probably one of my um, most passionate one is I am uh, run uh, EMC Code team which is the uh, group of open source developers that's designed to make EMC relevant in the DevOps and open source uh, type markets. Yeah. So we are somewhere, and it's not inside of like a data center. Yeah, there's know? no hot aisle here. We're not in the hot aisle. That's well, right. it's the muggy aisle. It feels like a hot aisle. Yeah, so it? we're in the muggy aisle. And um, matter of fact, there's a large herd of pilots coming behind us, and we'll see if they make some noise. Um, and they're, uh, they're getting a tour instead of flying through it with their goggles. Well, they get to walk the course. They're walking the course. Yeah. So... We're here. We're here. We're somewhere. We're at the U.S. Drone Nationals. That's right. Uh, and you were nice enough to invite me out here to do this podcast with the crickets and the pilots. Why are we here? Well, the you know the really interesting thing about drones is um, in the next four years, it's projected to be a six billion dollar business, 
and so we're here for two reasons. One is in support of all the open source software that flies and operates the drones, both on the drones and the flight controllers, and on the transmitters themselves. And then additionally, we're here to sort of support this industry that's growing at almost a billion dollars a year, um, and will be a six billion dollar business by 2020. So today it's some size, by 2020, something like six billion. Yeah. Uh, but it's drones and wings and cameras, and why does EMC code, why do you care about this? Well, what's interesting about uh, the drone racing uh, sport now is it's, it's sort of like the Formula One, uh, the up-and-coming Formula One sport. What's interesting to us about it is, again, that um, all of the software, the majority of the software that flies these drones at 60-plus miles an hour through the air um, is all open source. And so, you know, personally, my free time, I like to contribute and, and help out the community and write this type of software just because it's my personal passion. But what's interesting about drone pilots is the reason why they're successful is not necessarily because of the skill with their control sticks. That's half of it, sure. But they also have to have the skill around consuming open source software and using it very effectively and collecting information from user forums and groups and email lists and things like that. And it's very similar to what our customers face in the data centers, whereas they bring open source software into the data center. They, um, their sort of success depends upon their ability to consume open source software effectively. So many of the pilots here, some of the top pilots in the world are project managers at Google X, um, Facebook, web developers, uh, even at some of the big banks in New York City here, from Texas, from Florida, from all over the world, there's a gentleman here from Sydney, Australia, one of the banks out there, and that's his day job. And then on the weekends, he flies drones. Is that the dude with the boomerang cable? The boomerang cable, yeah. Yeah, let's, real quick, what is, Sydney, Australia, uh, he was nice enough to loan me a, a noob, a, a cable to charge my my battery that I just bought yesterday. Yeah. What's a boomerang cable? A boomerang cable was a joke. It's, uh, you know, if I give you this cable, it always comes right back to me. Nice. That's the joke. That was fun. Yeah, Sydney is, uh, that guy was really cool. It was very nice of him to loan that to us. So shout out to whoever that was. I forgot. <laughs> um, but uh, so we're here. We've got these pilots and these a lot of these pilots have software uh, experience. Matter of fact, somebody I talked with yesterday was like, we talked a little bit about drones and he showed some things and he's talking about what he's doing and we're like, is this a full-time job? And he's like, no, where do you work? Yahoo. Yeah, right. Yeah, and he was, and then another guy, we're talking to him, we we're like, is this a full-time job? Not quite yet, but almost. What did you used to do? Well, I, I did first level support for HP. Right. Right, so, you know, he, completely different skill set, but still very relevant. So tell me, like in practical terms, when you say you have to have a technology skill set, an open source skill set to be, to do these things, to run these drones, what, it, what are they actually doing and what, how are they consuming this and why is it different? Well, I think it's different because, um, you know, traditionally flight controllers have been dominated by large corporations and cost several hundreds of dollars to, to just buy. They were closed source, they kind of just did what they did and when, when they failed, nobody really knew why. And with the emergence of, uh, you know, very cheap uh, electronics coming out of China combined with open source software, you can get a board that's completely open source. For thirty or forty dollars, and so it makes this sport and it makes the technology accessible to so many other people. From a technology perspective, um, it's about you know drones just don't come out of the box, right? You have to take the components, you have to solder them together, you have to understand voltages and amperage and all these kind of uh, basic electrical engineering concepts that you know we're familiar with in IT, um, and that's why their skill sets transfer over so nicely to the sport. And um, that's probably the biggest reason why EMC and EMC Code are here supporting this is ultimately these pilots flying around in front of the Statue of Liberty at 60 miles an hour are also our customers. And that's that's why we're here to support them. Yeah, that's that's cool. And I mean, like, uh, I know AIG is here, you know, hooking up the VIP tent and Ernst & Young is here, which yeah. are, they're also 
you know, they are fantastic customers of EMCs as yep. well, so that's cool. But they obviously, they're not selling drones, but they may be talking about what the business of drones would be as well. Is that what, you're, yeah, is that's that what right. you think? Look at, uh, look at somebody like AIG is the largest commercial insurance company, I think, in the, in the United States at least. Um, I think Allianz is bigger in, uh, in Europe. But, um, you know, AIG is the insurer for the Spaceship One, for SpaceX. So when they start thinking about, well, where is their new business going to come from? They're going to look for commercial drone insurance, inspection services, those types of things. They see a huge new market for them in the same way that we see one for EMC. Mm -hmm. Slightly different, we want to sell ultimately storage and infrastructure to you know, deal with the data created from drones. They're looking to capitalize on the insurance business that should spring out of this. And I, I think it's spot on. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, I mean, as people walk into the booth and yep. they come in, they're all here and they've seen... 3D printed uh, like case and, and enclosures for drones and cameras. They see motors. They've got all this crazy stuff. They go buy goggles to to do FPV. Yeah, which congratulations is, on your first purchase yesterday. Thank, yeah, Very exciting. We yeah. gotta get a picture. On don't your, yeah. don't tell my wife. Good news is she doesn't listen to the she podcast. Does, that's great. Yeah, don't tell her. That's great. So we, you know, you get the FPV goggles, which is first person view, so you can actually see as you fly, which is how the pilots do it. And I can put on goggles and literally watch another pilot's view yeah. as he flies without impacting what he's doing. Yeah, that's right. But now I'm a I'm a customer out here. And I walk into your booth, your big VIP tent, yeah. and I say, well, you know, what are you doing? Um, you, you talk about this enterprise space and things like that. What are we doing today to help these people? Like, are, is there anything we can do today to help people who don't have that skill set to be able to consume drones and be able to do these kind of things? Yeah, I mean, you know, we um, work with a number of people in the open source community we, uh, with our customers and just outside, maybe our partners and things like that. Um, many of the guys on the team are also, you know, passionate about drones and doing this, and so they're participating in the forums. We have a, a, a new drone channel mm -hmm. on our code community and our Slack channel where people can pop in and ask questions and talk about uh, how I compiled this or what this flashing function does or uh, what's the math behind PID controllers. And so we can sort of help foster this community and by extension, you know, reach out to our customers that way and support them not only professionally but also in their hobbies, and it's all about building a bigger relationship. If you come into the EMC Code Sky Zone at Drone Nationals, you'll see um, sort of what we're calling the Skylab. And it's a virtual reality wonderland. It's this idea that in order to take drone racing sort of the next level, you have to make it consumable to the end customer, right? You have to want people to buy tickets to come and watch this event. So we have three room scale uh, HTC Vives uh, setups for virtual reality that you can put the goggles on and you can be fully immersed, walk around, jump, dodge, do that type of stuff. Um, and then we have another table uh, with uh, some gaming laptops, uh, some fantastic glyph headsets, and some radio controllers. And if you want to try your hand at piloting a drone without actually worrying about crashing or hitting anything, you can come in and check that out too. What's most interesting and, and fascinating for me is HTC earlier uh, last week uh, announced that they were open sourcing the entire control plane for the HTC Vive's head tracking and controllers and things like that. So you can see uh, some unbelievable applications for that later on. Maybe even, um, you know, we do training videos or we can do um, support calls in 3D one day. I think that would be uh, it'd be pretty neat to virtually walk down the hot aisle, if you will, and, and help customers in real time that way. That was a nice plug, by the way. Thank you. You're welcome. You, it's like you have media training. Yeah. So, um, you, and that's really interesting. So tell me a little bit more about this uh, drone, like the drone racing. The Vive stuff was super cool. Yeah. But specific to the drone racing, I have a couple of questions. Because I I have a drone. We've talked about this We've before. we talked about this, yeah. Matter of fact, most of the questions I get, if it's not like, you know, where's Brent, which is the main question I get, yeah. um, is, um, you know, what talk, you know, blah, 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 drones this, blah, drones that. Yeah. So a lot of people were excited about our conversation. Um, the, 
I, I I fly a DJI Phantom, which is like ready to fly, super easiest great, thing in yeah. the world. And it man, it's it's smarter than I am to help me fly. That's right. Um, but these 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 drones that are out here that the racers use are massively complex, and they're not nearly as easy to just get off the ground and do things with. So there's a much larger learning curve. That's right. But I noticed in here when I tried to fly this at first, I crashed a thousand times. The cool thing was it was free to crash. It's free to crash. That's and it's right. the exact same controller I would use on my quad out in the track. Yeah, that's right. And then the other cool thing was you actually have this like wireless setup with the with the transmitter. I saw I called transmitter it a con controller. It's okay. Okay, so no, I, I think I said the, the I said yeah. the c word. Yeah. Um, so transmitter. You also had this wireless experience as compared to USB. So. Is that that thing is also cool? Did somebody loan that to us? Or yeah, um, the the great folks at Spectrum are coming out with a, a wireless training module for their line of transmitters. So you can um, you're able to basically bind your transmitter to a USB key, and that USB key plugs into your laptop, and so you don't have to carry around these long, complicated cables and hope that your computer detects it and you plugged it in the right order. Um, it essentially, functions as just a, another radio receiver. And uh, the, the, it's been working flawlessly in the booth, so I'm excited for Spectrum to start shipping that. Um, I don't know when it's coming out, but I'll be—I'm a customer. Yeah, I was—I mean, I don't—I think I might even use it once and still be a customer. Yeah, it was right. super cool. Yeah, it was cool. Uh, and being able to go again—I talk all the time in my when I talk to people about Steam and really the consumption models and how things have changed. The idea that I can go to Steam and download Free Flight, plug this USB thing in, and get flying, and get flying. Yeah. Uh, before I go crash a $500 toy, uh, makes is really another way to consumerize this thing, which I think is important to help, you know, basically uptake. Yeah, it was uh, it was a really interesting experience. I mean, ultimately, what we'd like to do is uh, one of the coolest things I think we have in the booth is we have a 3D replica of the national, the U.S. national course that all the pilots are flying in the booth. So some people have walked by and said, "Oh, that looks easy." And we're like, "Why don't you come try it on the simulator and see if you can beat somebody's time?" Um, but ultimately, we would really like to be able to replicate the pilot space, you know, in reality in the 3D world at the same time so that you could be sitting on your couch, you know, either live or later on and compete with these pilots in real time. Their drone would fly in the same physical flight path that, um, you know, you could fly against and you could have collision physics and so on and so forth. We see this in high-end video games right now and I think it's something in the next year or two, maybe we'll have it nationals, so nationals two years from now or maybe worlds in a year and a half. Yeah. Um, people in the stands can be sitting there with wireless controllers and their own little goggles or phones or laptops and effectively be competing in real time with the pilots on course. I think that's incredible. I mean, I don't think any other sport can uh, can provide that. And so, and speaking of the sport and walking around, I mean, you've been doing a lot of um, handshaking and media and all those kind of things because yeah. that's just part of the opportunity here. Um, but you are also talking to the sportsmen and the teams and things like that. What is the reception or the feedback been of these large enterprise IT or insurance companies been to these small, you know, ten-person corporations and and startups and things like that. What's the reception been and the conversation been from that perspective? You know, the the, the enterprise customers have been uh, super supportive of these guys. I think they realize that you know ultimately for a company like AIG or Instant Young or even EMC to be successful in this market, you know, these smaller ten-person media companies are going to sort of feed the fuel to this fire and um, help our customers ultimately collect data more efficiently, do some uh, more complicated analytics. And, and ultimately just be um, be supportive of this. So I, the culture here is, you know, look, if you're listening and you're not into drones, think about what Linux was, you know, 10, 12 years ago. That's pretty much what we're experiencing here. It's a big group of people that see the potential and see the value and just want to be a part of starting something new and creating something new. 
And uh, that's sort of the vibe here if I had to convey it to your listeners. That's super cool. Well, Josh, I know you got tons of other things to do. You may want to get out there and get a flight in. I'm going to try people... to get a flight in, actually, before they go back to practice. We'll see. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. Grant, hey. how are you enjoying this? This has been great so far, actually. We've actually had magnificent weather in Manhattan for the last four days. So today's the first day we might get a little bit of rain, but like I haven't worn sandals in months, and this is fantastic, actually. So with me, uh, another guest, we have Grant Martin from Avagon. Did I say that right? Yeah, that's right, Avagon. Yeah, it's uh, pretty elegant, and I'm from Texas, so elegant and Texas don't match. It's I actually uh, it's a portmanteau, actually, between the two names of our founders, Evans and Tang. You mash those together. Portmanteau is like these two words together, so Avagant is, is the product of their name. That's super cool. We've actually had some other people that, with their corporation names, have done a very similar thing, uh, or even used some other like uh, analogies of how they kind of got it together. It's it's always interesting how somebody names their company. So, um, are you are you one of the founders of Avagant, or what what do you do there? I am employee number one ish, I guess. I mean, these two guys started the company, and then they brought me in to be uh, kind of part of their digital team that's putting together the product. I mean, and. and what we're making is we're making a new digital headset, and you know this is a very new and kind of breaking technology. So we actually crowdfunded it, and I was the person behind this massive crowdfunding campaign. And I've been with them for the last few years, kind of building up the product, first on the digital side, but now on the uh, hardware side. As well. So I'm very curious about this. Crowdfunded it. So did I give you money on Kickstarter, or where did this thing get crowdfunded at? Probably did. I mean, we uh, put this thing on Kickstarter right at about the time when head-mounted displays like. Oculus Rift were really taking off, and right when crowdfunding was taking off, and so it was this new, unexplored way to uh, raise capital, right? And something that everybody was learning along the process. Uh, it was great because we had some great media contacts at the time. We got some good momentum behind it. We raised, I think, we broke the record for the uh, fastest uh, crowdfunded campaign to reach two hundred fifty thousand dollars or a million dollars or something. It happened in like three or four hours, really fast. And it was a really, really successful campaign, but it really. Um, Helped us, like, I think, you know, kickstart the product and the company, and led to later stages of funding and building uh, the company and the product that we have now. So, um, would you say, okay, so obviously you used Kickstarter to help get this thing off the ground. Um, how did you, how did you advertise this product to people so that they understood what it was you were doing? It's, you know, the most important thing with the product like what we've done is it's about setting expectations, and that's kind of like bifurcated approach in talking to media, making sure that expectations are set around what the product does, what it can do, what it cannot do, and then working with uh, the crowd or the community to build out this product. It's, it's, it's funny because like people set these stretch goals on crowdfunding campaigns, right? And you end up having this feedback loop of excited people who want to participate and build the product with you. And as engineers and scientists, you want to add everything to the product as you can, but then later stages when you get into hardware manufacturing you realize like oh my goodness i can't put like this you know 15 kilowatt laser on the headset that i wanted to have or i can't put all these features in and you have to figure out how to dial everything in and make both uh, your consumers happy and also still meet the expectations that you set in the beginning of the campaign uh, so it's it's a complicated process but it's awesome and it's something that i would do again so this uh the avagant glyph which um Josh mentioned was in their um, Skylab. Um, did I? So, what exactly is this thing? You know, it's a new type of head-mounted display that's approaching the market right now, and I think head-mounted displays in general are becoming um, you know, a little bit more prominent. I think in the scene when you look at how VR is coming together, and you look at how Google Glass and 
ARs coming together as well. What the Glyph is, is it's um, halfway between AR and VR, and it's kind of a personal mobile media screen. So it's head-mounted display still. Uh, it does not take up your full field of view like VR does. It is not transparent like AR does, but it does take your mobile media and project it in front of you in this beautiful, sharp way. And, and, and the big difference is the core technology that's used. Uh, it's this display technology. It's micro-mirror or DLP technology. And it uh, creates this image. It's extremely sharp, and it paints it on the back of your eye. So you get a uh, much higher perceived resolution uh, than you would over conventional technology. And so this is this is not the same as when I got that little cardboard box off of Amazon and put my Android phone in it and laid on my back and watched a movie. Right, right, right. So this is an order of magnitude um, different in terms of display quality, better in terms of display quality, if you will. Um, if you look at, uh, you look very close at your LED or your LCD screen on your phone, this pixel structure is made out of three different pixels, right? Your red, green, blue pixel. Each of those fires consecutively to make this macro image that you see normally, right? If you have it, uh, only red image then, for example, you'd only be seeing like a third or even less of each and every single pixel, and the rest of that pixel is black, right? And this is why you get this screen door effect or this like this uh, lower resolution when you zoom up onto that screen. Uh, with the technology we're using, we actually use the full pixel, so it's a very colorful, a very vivid, vivid image, and this screen door effect or this um, uh, uh, the black areas between every single pixel, it goes down a lot. That leads to a much easier to consume, higher quality image for long term use. And so, why do you guys think? I mean, I saw somebody wearing. I actually took a picture of uh, one of my friends and tweeted it out. Um, and uh, you know, it looks like you're wearing a really big set of over-the-ear headphones, which I guess is the audio portion to make it more immersive. Uh, and then you have like um, a really thick set of like Jordy-like glasses on, right. covering your eyes. It's kind of like you're wearing the headphones forward, like you're trying to create a new style, right? Um, yeah, well, I mean, so this is, a, this is an important part of the product, right? Because, sure. I mean, if you look at head-mounted displays right now, I mean, people in society, I mean, you look at the broad mass media market, people are still very uncomfortable with head-mounted displays in public. And uh, in order for these these devices to become popular in a society, you know, in a sociological way, I think that people need to be comfortable with the form factor and less unwilling to wear these things in public. And to do that, they need to rely on a design, a canon that is... Um, seen before over your headphones and it is applied in a new and different way and you know it'll still take time for society to get comfortable with the technology but if they are uh, if they already trust it through a form factor that they've seen before that's only going to help us so do you guys uh, i mean just out of curiosity because i've seen them mentioned multiple times as people first see it do you guys have a problem when somebody goes oh it looks like they're wearing beats over their eyes yeah i mean initially uh, and you know the reactions uh, across the spectrum. Some people are like, holy cow, I mean, what are you doing with your headphones? And some people, you know, are lambast you a little bit. But uh, I think as uh, people see more and more of these headsets out and about in the world, uh, they get more comfortable with them. Like, we wear them on planes between San Francisco and China all the time now when we're traveling. And it used to be people would stop and gape and everything. But now people are like, oh, this is one of those head-mounted displays, right? And I think society is uh, advancing at this rapid pace so that soon, you know, next year, on the F or the L in York City, you'll be seeing people wearing headphone displays, and people will be like, "That's okay." I can't wait to see a picture of that. So, um, you you've got these head-mounted displays. You're saying people are wearing them out in public. Obviously, they're in stationary situations. You're not recommending they're using these while driving their not driving their Tesla, right? Like that's not what you're saying. Oh my goodness, no! I mean, you know, it's it is a still a media display that covers your field of view and that uh, does not allow you to see directly in front of you. You still have some situational awareness. 
um, and you can still see your hands uh, below the, the headset and above the headset if you need to. And this is actually really interesting for the drone application because um, if you're flying, uh, you know, you can fly FPV with these drones. I mean, this is um, with these headsets. And uh, we've got kind of like this new digital take on FPV or uh, flight. Uh, but um, if you feed the camera from the drone into the headset, uh, you can see what the drone sees, but you can also see your hands or the radio or maintain line of sight with your drone when you're flying. So in this way, it doesn't fully shut you off from the world and you can still engage with your drone if you need to. It's a really good sweet spot for drone flight. So, yeah, I mean, explain this to me. I, as Josh mentioned, I bought myself some, like, Fat Shark HD2s yesterday and got it went got a receiver and things like that. I've played with your, your, your um, display uh, playing the video game, but when I play the video game, you know, I'm tethered to it and I've got a USB cable and all that. What is my, what is my interaction between my drone where I've got this um, transmitter in my hands, drones up in the air, and I'm wearing your product? Am I USB cabled in or am I... Is there going to be a wireless function, or how is this going to be implemented? Yeah, I mean, the entire network of drone racing right now is in the middle of this transition. Uh, and it's got to do with the way that the drones communicate with the pilots. So right now, uh, drone communications uh, from the cameras down to the pilot's headsets run on an analog feed. So this is basically your 1983 technology where you've got like these, these CRT images. When, and it's like when you put the VHS tape in your your VCR and you're rewinding it, you get the squiggles all over the place. They get these very rough, difficult analog feeds. And right now, I mean, this year we're in the process of transitioning to these digital feeds led by a few great groups, um, AMMA and a couple of others. And as we're going to digital, there's this really strong need for digital headsets that's coming down the line. Uh, this is plug and play HDMI, where you plug it right into the digital receiver and you can see what the drone sees. Uh, Image quality between an analog and a digital feed is order of magnitude better. And, you know, even though the cost is a little bit higher right now, I think as, as pilots get more comfortable with the technology, as these pro racers demand high quality images, you're going to see a lot more digital headsets out there. So you're saying it looks less like, um, I think they even tried to kind of copy this with like the grudge or whatever, where it like scrolls the screen or like channel 99 where you were halfway watching HBO even though you didn't pay for it. Okay. It looks less like that and more like what you watch on TV at home in general, or like maybe your high-end security cameras. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, uh, you know, uh, just like streaming Netflix from your phone, right? And, and there are some limitations with digital technology as well. I mean, the failure rate when you're flying is not uh, graceful like analog. You know, you get an antenna too far away from your TV, the signal fades. But with digital, it just drops. Yeah, it's either yes or no as compared to kind of, sort of. Right, yeah. I and mean, if you're flying 85 miles an hour around a tree, I mean, you cannot tolerate that image to drop out. But, you know, as, as digital continues to mature, it's going to get better and cleaner. Uh, as these headsets, uh, like the Glyph, continue to mature, it's going to be um, a lot easier to use these things. So it's only going to keep growing. Super cool. So uh, when Avagon brought you in, they brought you in for your, we got a, like an elephant party coming in at the moment. Um, but uh, when Avagon brought you in for your expertise, it's around this, this kind of transformation from analog, old school, to digital. Um, or with the focus of helping the product, or is it really to help these pilots and help get more and more consumption in uh, this other type of application? 
my primary goal right now inside of Avogad, I'm a product manager, is uh, really to see the product through uh, to the drone market and make sure that the product fits the drone market well. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a couple areas of this. There's racing, which is what we're doing right now, but also there's this area of uh, aerial cinematography that's booming right now. And you mentioned earlier that you have a Phantom 2, right? All of these digital drones coming to market from DJI, from Parrot, from 3DR, they have digital feeds that go back to their headsets or their, um, their radios. And all you need to do is plug the glyph into the back of that and you get instant FPV. That market is moving right now as well. I see that really, really growing in the next few years. That's super cool. Now I have to, so I can buy one today, plug it into my Phantom 234, and I can go use this to fly you know, the kind of easy, ready-to-fly stuff as compared to what the racers are using. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Phantom 3 and 4, you need to get an HDMI backpack that goes in the back of the radio with the Inspire. It's plug-and-play. So all you need to do is literally take the HDMI cable, plug it into the back of the radio. You can instantly see what the drone sees, as well as the OSD, which is all of the uh, telemetry. Uh, and you also get um, head tracking. So if you, there's, an, uh, there's an accelerometer and the glyph. If you plug USB into the back of the radio, you can actually control the gimbal from the sky. Move your head left and right, the gimbal looks left and right. It's like the eye of God in sky. That's super cool. Yeah, that's a, that sounds like a lot of fun. So now I feel like I need to go order one and try this out. Uh, so I'm going to be out like another another 500 bucks or whatever. I don't even know how much they cost. I've actually got an Inspire coming out today. Uh, stop by a little bit later and I'll give you a demo. It's really neat. That's super cool. So what, what else is next for... You, I mean, I know you're, you're working on getting this product really out to market even further. Um, how many customers do you have today? What's next for you? What else are you doing for, for your product? And then maybe, are there any follow-on products? Yeah, I mean, the core technology that we're using in the Glyph, this micro-mirror technology, is very well suited to a wide variety of form factors. Every time somebody puts the headset on, they're like, wow, I didn't realize it was going to be this sharp. I was expecting it to be, you know, just another headset, but this display technology is really strong. So uh, we've had a lot of interest in applying the technology to different form factors outside of the direct consumer play that we're making right now. Uh, applying it to VR, for example, AR, to uh, something that is very, very specifically built for drone people. I mean, the glyph that we have right now is for multimedia consumption, so it's got the high-quality audio. You can watch movies on the train, plane, etc. But if we made something specifically for drone people, I could see it potentially not having ear cans, being a little bit lighter, being white instead of black, so that isn't as reflective in the sun. And uh, I, you know, without giving you too many details on the roadmap right now, I think that that is a strong consideration for, for where we take the company. I'm sure somebody's already said it, but make sure it records because that's my favorite feature. It's like the ability to watch what you're doing and record it and like put it straight up on YouTube is super cool. Oh, I mean, and then the great thing about the drone market, too, is that so many people in this yes. space, are, they just want the best experience possible. So they don't care what it looks like. They don't care about how much it weighs, yes. for example. They just want to strap the best experience to their face. These are early adopters, and this is why I love this space so much. So I do have a, cur I have a curiosity around the idea of digital, high, high resolution, high bandwidth, you know, best experience. Um, the, the small analog experience today is low bandwidth, easy to communicate, low, and essentially low latency. And when you're making a decision, like you said, at 85 miles an hour, you don't want that decision to have already been made two seconds prior and you just didn't realize it. So is there a, is there, what's the issue or how are you solving the bandwidth issues of having high latency with something that is essentially high resolution? A lot of that is being solved actually through some of the communication companies that are building this new digital technology. Uh, 
left or the avant-garde clip, if you will, actually only functions as a display. Now, intrinsically, it's a low latency display, so if you look at the micro-mirror technology from input to the front of the glass, you only get about 12 to 13 milliseconds of latency. And that's about half of what you'd see in an LED or an LCD technology. However, most of the latency comes from communications. And this is the communications from the camera on the drone uh, or on the quad all the way down to the, the receiver that you've got. Uh, Amamon, which is a group out of uh, Israel, I believe, has solved this pretty well to get the latency down to the point of four to six milliseconds. Uh, their new uh, ProSight technology, I believe is what it's called, is custom built just for drones, end-to-end, -end, glass to glass, it's only you know, six to eight milliseconds. Yeah, and I feel like they're the they're the um, biggest inhibitor into consumption of your product more massively. Would you agree with that? More yeah, so than what you create yourselves? Sure. I mean, and I could always take an analog feed and convert it to digital. You know, I could take any analog feed from any transmitter out there, convert it to digital, pump that through the cliff. But then you'll be seeing that 1983 VCR through a high quality lens and it's just not the same. Cool. Well, uh, I know you've got a lot of things to do. I think you, I even see people waiting on you to get you out. So is there anything else you can share with us or share with the community as far as, I mean, like you, we've mentioned other things and control planes being open sourced for drones and things like that. Is there any software development thoughts and things that you have as far as your product, where you see things going and where there's a community aspect to it? Yeah, I mean, we're still a very small and modest company, I guess. You know, we're crowdfunded. Uh, you know, we're very uh, light funding. We're based out of San Francisco. So we're doing our best to enter this space gently, carefully, work with the right people. Uh, our SDK uh, just launched this month. Uh, we've got it up and running on uh, Windows, Mac, iOS, Android, all four platforms. Uh, and we're working with, uh, very carefully working with select partners to make sure that we can get some of this interactive stuff moving, like 360 head tracking on drones, interactive 360 uh, video content. That's coming together right now for our software team. Uh, and in general, my specific interest in the drone space is seeing digital displays grow more, become more prominent in this space, and doing it in a way that's kind of respectful to the industry. Uh, I encourage anybody who's building new drone, uh, I'm sorry, new digital communications in the drone space to reach out. Uh, digital teams who are interested in exploring digital headsets can reach out. I'm grant.martin at avagant.com. Very easy to find, and I'm on at all these events to help you in drone worlds. But yeah, I mean, I, I think we're really interested in sharing the love and building the technology together. This has been a great part of it. Sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Well, oh, you're going to let me talk now. You've been talking now for, what, uh, two episodes that you recorded at the, the Drone Nationals in New York. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not my fault you were on mute the entire time. Or, <laughs> nor was it my fault that they literally held that thing out on Governor's Island. And there was, like, internet was, I don't know. I don't know how to explain internet. Let's just put it this way. Allegedly, ESPN3 lost their feed because their point-to-point -point link between the island and the mainland was cut off by a sailboat. Okay, so if ESPN3 and all their power from Bristol can't get their signal off the island, you know without a doubt when you're at home for your baby's birthday, I'm not going to be able to get you on the podcast with me there. And I missed you and I felt guilty the entire time. I just want you to know that I'm putting it out there and um, you'll you'll hear the audio, what the, the missing you in my voice. You're here now. It's all you. I'm stepping back. Matter of fact, I'm going to hit mute. Dang! Wow, mic drop. <laughs> wow. That's that's awesome. Well, no, I think I think Brian Brian said it, you know, and I and we haven't heard the episodes that you recorded yet, um, but I'm assuming that you told everyone how wonderful I was and the fact that I was staying at home with my daughter for her first birthday on Saturday. So, as much as I would have loved to be there at the Drone Nationals in New York, I couldn't. 
Um, but that said, I had a phenomenal time uh, at, the, at my daughter's first birthday. But that said, this will be the third installment with another special guest uh, on the hot aisle today. I think this is episode number 46, if we're counting correctly, if it's not just an individual segment uh, where I think we're smashing three of them together for this one. But our guest today is Nelson Aquino. Nelson, how you doing today, buddy? Good. How are you guys? I'm doing awesome, man. Um, so you're in New York. I'm in Arizona. It's 742 he's my in, time. He's and it's, in Miami. You got Eastern time right, but he's in oh, Miami. Yeah, I'm in Miami. <laughs> That's right. Fair enough. So you're three hours ahead, man. So appreciate you staying up late for this, and uh, I know it's going to be a great episode. So Nelson, first of all, you know Brian met you at uh, at the Drone Nationals in New York. Tell us a bit about yourself and, and kind of got, how you guys got introduced. Uh, sure. Actually, um, we were there obviously to compete in the team races. I'm part of a team called Gravity Goons, and um, so I happened to stop by. I guess it was the VR computer. Uh, they had like the simulators go in there and stuff like that. So they had the sim um, that I played called Liftoff. Um, I play all of them, but that one was there. And um, on a lot of the tracks on that sim, I happen to have a lot of the records um, or you know the posted records on. Uh, and and Brian walked by, and I guess I don't know if it was he saw me flying on it, and I was doing all right. I was like, yeah, I have a couple of the records on here. And he was like, oh, that's awesome. Um, let's talk. So yeah, that's kind of how we uh, came across each other there. So it's pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, Brian, I have to tell the story. Again. I have to tell the story here because what really happened was I was up at the front of the booth, minding my own business, which is the same, you know. So it was the EMC Code Skylab. Come on, Brian. And we know the, we know you don't mind your own business. No. Well, but by by minding <laughs> my own business, I was standing at the front trying to do as little as possible and trying to look pretty. Both of which. I was not doing a good job of. I'm, you know, you accomplished those, man. I'm looking yeah. at you on Skype right now, and yeah, so, you're very favorable. So enough of that. Um, and <laughs> somebody comes up to me and they're like, "Hey, there's this dude down on the end, and he says he has like the record for liftoff." And I'm like, "Let's go find out more." So I saunter down, and I'm like, "Hi, I'm Brian. Tell me more." And we chatted for forever. And my favorite part was, my favorite part was. I was helping him get set up, and I don't know anything, but I was at least telling him it's okay for him to screw up the computer on his behalf. And I'm like, do whatever. Make it as perfect for you to set up your flights. And uh, it, his, his, his wife was there. It was, uh, I'm, I'm not going to get in trouble, right? That was your wife. Yeah, that was my wife. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of things going on. So yeah, your yeah. wife was there. And while he's racing, he's got the glyph on, and he's, got, he's racing, and he's flying through. I'm talking to her, and the seat across opens up, and I'm like, you're going to fly. And she goes, I don't even fly with him at home. And I'm like, I don't care. You're going to sit down and you're going to fly. And she flew that day. Like, so they basically both sat down at the table and flew. So I believe that, you know, our booth and me, I brought, you know, I brought their family closer together because the, the you know, the couple that flies drones together on simulators stays together. They stays together. They yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. So exactly. I have pictures of it. I owe him, but I'm proud of myself. Anyways, that's how we, that's how we got together. Super compelling guy. And that's why he's on the podcast. Fire away, Brent. <laughs> well, cool, man. So before we get into all of the world renowned records and the places you've been and the things you've seen, let's talk about kind of how you got to where you are today. Right. I mean, so tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself, the kind of the role that you're in today and, and how you got there. Sure, man. Um, as far as drone racing goes, there's there's a, a couple of um, videos out there that kind of got everyone started. Whether it was uh, Carlos Bertolas, which is his uh, his pilot handled his Sharpoo, 
or um, there's a video that was taken out of, out of France, and there were these guys that were flying through a forest with these little flying machines that had four blades on them with LEDs, and they're going through the forest, and you're like, oh, my God, what is this? How do I get into this? As a video gamer or anyone who's seen, like, Star Wars uh, uh, pod racing or anyone who likes flight in general, it was an instant, like, I have to know what this is. So um, that's kind of how I started uh, in, 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 in getting into drone racing uh, from the beginning. I never did anything RC before, cars or helicopters. Uh, a lot of other guys in the sport have. Um, so I got started with that, and I wound up buying this little toy, you know, $25 hel- like uh, quad, flew that around, lost it, broke a, f- broke a bunch of them. And then I got into the simulators, which is kind of how I started getting those, uh, those records. And then it was time to jump into the real thing. Um, and I bought a ready-to-fly one, uh, broke that a couple times, bought a couple more, broke those, and then I built my own. Um, started getting involved with uh, with different leagues, uh, mainly MultiGP, which is a, a different league that they run races out here in the East Coast. Um, and and it was just been going from there. I started organizing my chapter in Miami. We went from seven members to 125 members um, in a in a couple of months. And uh, it's just been enthrall- enthralled with the sport. Just just jumped into it head first. Very cool. So is this a full time job for you now? Uh, it it has been for a couple of months, um, and I'm trying to see uh, expand some horizons and doing some some international sales uh, with it. But you know, it, it's it's been slow. It's been slow for a lot of if for the the money in this game is in the organizing of events. Um, as a professional pilot trying to win races, it's very difficult. There are a few guys out there that are are doing it full time as well, but you know. Uh, there's not a lot of big money races out there. There's only been a handful. So, you know, the odds of you winning, even if you're really good, um, obviously Joe Nationals this weekend was a really good example of that. You had, you know, some really, really fast guys that, that, that didn't make it. And they're doing it full time too. So, um, yeah, if it, if it doesn't work out, I could always go back to work. I was an IT business analyst before. So it's I'm just enjoying living off savings right now. <laughs> okay. Very cool. So you talked about, <clears throat> you know, you, you, you did the pre-mades before, uh, mm-hmm. and that was just kind of putzing around. Can you, you can race those as well, no problem? Um, yeah, the Immersion RC, which was one of the sponsors of this uh, race that we went to this weekend, uh, um, they had or have uh, a quad called the Vortex and now the Vortex Pro, which is a ready-to-fly quad. It has all the motors. Everything's built into it. It has a nice on-screen display. Um and and it's it's a really good platform to get started. Like the analogy I like to use with people is, did you build your first car or did you drive your first car? You know how you know did you build? You 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 have to have drove first mostly before you start building them. So it's the same thing with these. Like these are pre-built. Um, they come ready to fly out of the box. They're already tuned. You don't need to know all the algorithms or pit tuning or how to flash software on it, which you learn on the fly. So, um, yeah, I started with those, and they're really they're, you can really be competitive with them. I saw a few people flying them out there this weekend, so it's not like they're like completely sluggish, but nothing really beats a custom built quad um, for for different powers that, uh, different power setups that you want to run. So, but it's still a really good starter and intermediate uh, level platform. Okay, so from from the buy off the shelf to building your own. Um, obviously there's got to be a certain level of acumen. So being or having an IT background, does that help you in, in setting up these new rigs? 
Um, yeah, uh, obviously you have to have uh, some passion for tinkering. I, I, to be honest, I don't like tinkering that much with them. Like, I just want to fly. That's kind of what, what drove me into, into buying the Ready to Fly in the beginning. I just want to fly. But, you know, once you start competing and you start seeing the power that these custom quads have, um, it kind of just drives you to, okay, now I have to build one because either that or I'm just going to get smoked all the time. So, um, but yeah, it definitely helps. I was also an aircraft electrician in the Air Force. So soldering and all that stuff kind of helps too. So, it, I mean, it just fell on my lap, I guess. It was something that um, I'm really passionate about already. And it's, it combines all those things for me, the gaming, the, the, ele- the electronics, the computers, uh, programming and all that stuff. So, yeah, it all came together in just one little package. Awesome, man. Well, hey, <clears throat> thanks for your service. I'm a, I'm a fellow veteran myself, so <clears throat> that's cool, man. I've got a, a similar too, a similar background in, in electronics. I was working on missile guidance systems. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. So that was, that was certainly a different, but that, you know, certainly got an acumen for, for electronics and then also growing up building computers. But, um, anyway, this is about you, man. So let's talk about the software you brought up, you know, flashing, uh, flashing things into memory and, uh, actuators and, you know, all these other components. So where, where did, where do you get all, all this software? Is there like a central repository for it? Um, is it open source? Like, you know, where does this come about and how, to, how do you find out about it? Sure. Well, as you start building, um, I guess you have to take it down to there's there's mainly two pieces of software that you're that you're um, flashing onto these quadcopters. Uh, one of them being the flight control software, um, which has evolved o- over time and is mostly open source. Now, there are a couple of of proprietary uh, platforms out there that are really good as well, but the open source stuff is really what's blowing up. And um, the same goes for your electronic speed controllers. So, from the flight controller feeds the information of how the how the aircraft is supposed to be oriented um, based on your input. So, if you want it to pitch forward, um, the gyro has to pitch forward and has to send that signal over to electronic speed controllers. And those speed controllers they uh, forward that signal onto the motors telling, okay, I need the two back motors to spin faster, the two front motors to spin slower, so that way the, the quadcopter tilts forward. Um, so those those two pieces of software are out there. Um, there's It started out with uh, Open Pilot and Clean Flight. Uh, even before that, people were running KK2s and Multi-Wii, which is, um, I guess, the original the original hack for quadcopters. Actually, somebody took a, like a, a, a Wii controller from a from um the nintendo i forgot what the name of the system was is not the wii it's a wii yeah it's It's a wii Wii. okay so it's a wii controller and um since it has a gyro on it i guess that's i i wasn't around back then in this this space so this could all be hearsay but i'm sure you're gonna have guys fact check me on here but somebody took that and started using it for for gyros and that's how they started controlling it after that it kind of evolved um open pilot came out clean flight came out um, and those are all configurators. So you flash this on your flight controller, and then you can configure your your pitch, your pids, your rates for how you want it to turn. Um, different protocols for your ESCs for your electronic speed controllers, and so on. Then flat, then software started coming out specifically for the speed controllers, um, so they can you know run more efficiently. Uh, you can get more thrust. You can actually run like one speed controller with one set of let's say the 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 stuff right now it's called multi shot um 
And those are protocols that have been evolving. Like one started, uh, it, it has to do with the the amount of loops that it that the speed controller sends to the motor. So now the fastest stuff out there is called multi shot because it it's I don't know the the specific technical uh, aspects of it, but it sends different it sends a certain amount of signals through a certain amount of loops through the speed controllers, so it refreshes at a faster rate, so it responds. Uh, quickly more or more quickly rather so i mean there's there's just a plethora of stuff that's going on it's constantly evolving there's always software updates coming out like almost on a weekly basis or even faster um and it's getting just better and better and more refined every single day cool so so can you can you essentially overclock your your aircraft exactly yes that is something that people are doing right so um you know like I, i was talking about refresh rates and, you know, we started running like a thousand hertz, right? One kilohertz. Then it evolved to two. Now it's four and eight. And now, like, if you want to push the limits, people are running up to 32,000 hertz um, for loop time. So it's like, it's just, it's exponential every time. It's kind of like uh, our, our processing power, but like condensed into like an eight month period. It's just evolving so quickly. Right on. Well, cool. So I've heard uh, in this discussion, PID, PIT, and a few other things. What, what's what's PID and what's PIT? Well, PID, PID is just one, just just PID. PID. PID is, pro- PID is proportional, uh, integral, and derivative. So those are um, terms that are used uh, in calculus, and a lot of the um, the autonomous vehicles kind of use that. I can link you a video, I guess, afterwards that kind of explains what each one does. Um, but what they do is, and and it's kind of this this mystical thing for a lot of us because we're not all calculus dorks, obviously. Like I said, I just like to fly, so I just enter numbers and whatever gives me the best the best result is what works. I don't know what they do, but whatever makes me fly better, or I borrow somebody else's number. So a running joke in the community is everyone's always asking each other, "What are your pids?" But um, <laughs> it it doesn't matter because each quadcopter is um separate. Yeah, I feel so, like I feel like when I was in the in the pilots area and like you'd hear I kind of heard every once in a while I was like, hey, you know, hey, what's your pit or what'd you use on that or whatever? I feel like it's a little bit like prison where you go in there and you don't exactly tell people why you're in there, and rather you make up some completely different story as to why you're in there. And because otherwise, it, although it's a very open community and everybody's very helpful and people were giving everybody everything and so many people loaned me things just so that I could watch the race. Um, I also feel like there's, that's like you said, it's kind of this number that gives people a competitive advantage. It'd be like going to the pit next to you in a race and asking them what their setups were on like, you know, how, how leaned in their tires were and all these other kind of things, how much, how much wedge they've taken out of their race car. So it's kind of a, it was an interesting concept to see people talking about that. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that, um, the, the running joke behind it is, is my pits are all three or my pits are all, you get somebody just some random number. But it's not because of the competitive advantage, believe it or not, because a lot of people do share that. You, in this community, you'll see a lot of guys. Um, I've seen guys give other people their entire quad setups, like, here, fly this because you broke yours and you have to finish this final. Um, the community is very tight-knit. The difference is is that these PIDs are specific to your aircraft. So your aircraft is balanced a certain way. They're all custom, so there, there aren't many that are the same. So your aircraft is balanced a certain way. The motors are a certain speed. The props you're using are different from my props. I might have a bigger battery than you. And that all affects in how the aircraft responds and how you want those PIDs to 
um, to write your aircraft in the right fashion or in the right speed or, or lock it in a certain way. So no two PIDs are perfect for a specific aircraft. So that's why when people ask, what are your PIDs, is because they don't know that difference. And they just go, oh, my PIDs are all three or my PIDs are all equal four and go with that, you know. But it's getting to the point where you don't need those anymore because the refresh rates are getting so fast that you don't need to fine-tune those adjustments because the motors are going to respond so quickly that you're not going to notice a difference. Right on. Well, cool. So speaking of, of community, you brought up earlier on that you represent uh, a, a team called the Gravity Goons. Uh, you said there's, I think you said 120-ish uh, no. pilots on it? No, no, no. Um, the team that I'm part of is Gravity Goons. There's seven pilots um, that we're a part of now. I do run a chapter of MultiGP, which is a league ah. that I'm a part of in Miami that has 120 pilots. Yeah. Okay, so cool. Tell us about Gravity Goons, man. How did you guys meet? Where are you guys located? Um, so, yeah, we're from Miami. Um, we, we're all local from here. We're all That's one of the things. There's only like a couple of teams that are um, have all local. We're all friends. Like there's other teams that are sponsored and they don't really know each other. Or they do know each other, but, you know, they don't live in the same cities. They just come together to compete. Whereas um, teams like the Gravity Goons, we're all friends. We've all met before. We all live near each other. All our families know each other. Um, so, yeah, we met in uh, – thanksgiving and we you know we just pretty much went out to downtown miami and and flew all the spots out there and and decided that we wanted to make a racing team and from there um we got invited to go to dubai for that big uh one million dollar race uh we were one of the 32 teams selected in the world to go out there and compete um and and we've been rolling with it since then we we make uh videos and we just like hanging out with each other and driving each other crazy yeah, sure, and furthering the sport, certainly. Yep. <clears throat> so talk to us about that Dubai trip and, and, and the Gravity Goons and how you guys are sponsored and recognized and you know how does one get that um, ability to go? And and then finally, like, were you guys, uh, was this like an all-inclusive paid trip or was it kind of on your dime? Uh, yeah, uh, well, the, the, the competition they wanted to do in Dubai, they wanted everyone to go and qualify at these different events. But the competition was only like two months away, and they figured they're not going to have enough time to get all these people to go compete. So they asked everyone to do video submissions of uh, a certain track layout to introduce their pilots and to be creative in their in their submissions. They had to meet all these different criteria of, you know, you have to fly through a gate that's this high, you have to land in an area that's this big, you have to change a battery and do like a pit procedure. Um, so we did that and we kind of executed that to the T of what they wanted. We saw a lot of other people's videos and they weren't even, you know, they just flew around in a circle and landed and called it a day. So we were, we were very um, meticulous in how we put the video together and I guess that's why they picked us. And it wasn't all. So like, I guess the figure eight that I can do with my uh, Phantom is not uh, sufficient. No, not good enough. You're gonna have to do better than that. <laughs> so, so the 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 trip was all inclusive for those 32 teams, right? So they said they were gonna pay your flight, hotel, and they would give you like food vouchers while you're there and stuff like that. So we really didn't have to come out of pocket that much. Um, obviously, when we were there, we went and saw the sights and sounds and, and took pictures of everything and and did all that, but. For the most part, it, w it was all-inclusive. Um, they did have issues with people. Um, they said they, they would either reimburse you for your trip or you can – they would buy the tickets for you. So not a lot of people had you know seven or $8,000 laying around to buy tickets for five people to go to Dubai. 
So we waited for them to buy our tickets for us, um, and they did. They did it. They bought the tickets two days before we were supposed to fly out. Wow, that is awesome, man! I mean, how cool is that? You just have to submit a a YouTube video and like a you know an audition, basically, and and here you are getting flown and probably real realistically fifteen to twenty thousand dollars per person. Oh yeah, it was definitely a twenty. No, no, I would say it was like a twenty thousand dollar trip for sure. Um, for 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 the group for the group, the tickets were like fifteen hundred bucks each. Plus the hotel was like three hundred dollars a night and food and all that stuff. So yeah, wow, that's it adds awesome. up. And they did that for thirty-two teams, but a total of like seventy-five teams showed up. So a wow. bunch of people went on their own dime. Yeah. Oh, cool. So really um, before before this happened, mm-hmm. uh, you, you brought up the drone simulator and the fact that you have uh, uh, a liftoff is the drone simulator, but you have you have some some of the the I don't know, world records. So talk to us about that, and then did that impact your ability to get over to Dubai? Uh, no, no, no. Um, they didn't really look at that stuff. I, I'm mainly – the reason why I fly so much on the simulators is because I don't really have a lot of time to fly in real life. So um, I wanted to get as much practice in, and that's how I started um, with the sims. And it's a really, really cheap way for you to start learning muscle memory. Because the controls are the same, right? Up is up, left is left, right is right, you know, power is power. Obviously, the quad in real life will react differently. There's wind, there's, you know, gravity is different, you know, all these other things are different. But you can really save yourself a lot of time and heartache and breaking parts if you get used to at least orientation and getting, you know, muscle memories with the controls. So that's kind of how I started with The Sims. And then, you know, these uh, people started putting together these leaderboards online of doing these tracks just, you know, to, for, 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 for fun. And, um, a lot of people started taking it seriously. So we started putting in a lot of time, um, into doing these tracks as quickly as possible. Um, so it's not just liftoff. There's a, there's a bunch of other simulators, um, free rider, uh, hot props, liftoff. I know the rotor sports, the people from drone nationals are coming out with a simulator that I got to try this weekend. Um, and there's, there's a bunch of that, that was, uh, those those sims are are a, a huge time saver. I I definitely recommend them to anyone that wants to get into racing, um, because you pay 170 bucks for the sim and the controller, but you save yourself a whole bunch of time and heartache. You can constantly just keep practicing over and over. Where whereas if you're flying in real life, um, you know you have to stop, fly, change a battery. If you break a prop, you know you might be able to fly 10, 20 batteries in a day. Or I mean, if you go really hard, you can fly 50 batteries in a day. Or more, but I can fly the sim, you know, a thousand times in a day and crash and just hit the button, boop, reset, and I'm yeah. good to go. You know, so this must be the same one. I've been to a few RC shops, and they always have that sim there. You can fly all the different airplanes, all the different mm-hmm. helicopters, and it has yeah, that's a controller. Real flight. Yeah, that's okay. real flight. Yeah, that's that's called real flight. It's like it's like 170 bucks or something like that. It comes with a it comes with a controller, which is not a real transmitter. It's it has the same gimbals, like the sticks are the same as a real controller, but it's not a functional transmitter, right? So then you buy that, and it comes with a controller. You can play on real flight. You can, you know, practice all the planes and helis, like you said. But then they have the specialized um, quadcopter simulator, simulators, like like liftoff or freerider, hot props, and all these other guys. And those are much cheaper, twenty bucks, five bucks. Um, okay. Some are even free. I know there there are some open source ones out and there then- working on. And then uh, for for liftoff, for instance, you you use your own controller, right? So some sort liftoff, of receiver. 
no liftoff actually works with that with that same controller from from the real flight so once you get that controller ah, you can gotcha. get that to work with a lot of other different sims so that's why i tell people to get that one because they don't have to buy it like if you don't have any quads you don't have any you're just getting started you know you're not going to fly a real quad for a while you're going to spend 200 dollars on the remote and you might not even like it you know or you might not do feel like you're going to do well on it but if you get the sim you know it's it's just a one-time investment of you know that amount of money and if you don't like it then you know at least you didn't buy a full 200 hundred dollar radio you can't use for anything else yeah Right on. Now, have you found that um, spending, uh, you know, the amount of time that you have, which is high, on the simulator, how does that translate back to the track? Has it benefited you? Um, in, in, you know, I, I think you, you know, you talked about I want to get good and figure out this stuff without spending a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, when you when you've honed your craft, right? When you're when you're at the top of your game, does going back into the sim actually afford you? Um, a greater advantage or an ability to to get better no um once you reach a certain point i think i mean i wish i can fly like i fly in the sim because you're like there's a lot of other factors i mean when you're on the stage you get you get the jitters your thumbs are shaking your hands are shaking you're trembling your heart's pounding and that's not something you can simulate so um i wish i could fly like that in real life man i'd be winning all over the place um (laughs) but you know, it does. It definitely helps up to a certain point, but uh, nothing really beats the real thing. You really once you once you get to that point, you really have to get out there um, and practice. And like I said, there are guys out there putting in serious work, um, flying. Like I said, twenty, thirty. I've heard a hundred packs. Uh, you know, a day, like just going hard trying to practice. I mean, they're making this a sport. You know. Wow. Yeah, well, speaking of making this a sport, right? So Drone Nationals just happened uh, 5 through 7 August in New York. Um, it was streamed live on ESPN. Uh, first of all, did you ever think that would happen um, to see this thing actually streaming live? Totally, man. I think um, – I believed in the sport from the very beginning because it has all the aspects of – uh, esports, for example, we have the video game aspect of it with the goggles and the controls, right? Um, but it's in real life, so now you're dealing with things that are in in our in our reality. So if you're going 80 miles an hour, like I did, and I slammed into that glass fishbowl at Joe Nationals, it wasn't a game. Like I destroyed. I heard about a, that. <laughs> I destroyed a $500 piece of equipment. Like I crushed it. So it's it's for real. You know, that's that's kind of. Um, it brings those things together. You have that adrenaline of speed and 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 just like that feeling of flight like you can you're like a lot of the guys say you're a superman. So you have all these components together. It, it, it has to catch on, man. As more and more people watch it and do it and try it, it's just it's just so addictive. Um, you could just do it over and over. So I totally um, felt that it would have it was going to reach that point one day. And I, I still think there's a long way to go to make it a spectator-friendly sport. Um, I don't think spectators in in person are going to be the future of it. I think it's going to be more through online, through Twitch, like you said, through streaming. Because in person, they're really hard to see. You know, you guys, uh, Brian was there, I'm sure. Like, once they started getting out of line of sight or they got, you know, a couple hundred feet away, they look like little gnats, you know. Um, but once, if you put some good camera work in there and, and good lighting and you stream it online, so you get all the pilot perspectives, I think that's definitely going to be the avenue for the sport to grow even further. Yeah, dude, if you can stream, um, um, 
StarCraft and other games like that. Yeah, and people yeah like, exactly. There's millions of dollars in that sport. I think absolutely, if they do it right, it will it will be worth it. I yeah. think if there's I think if there's setups like, I mean, I tell you, if I, if there are setups like that fishbowl, except for maybe not so hot and you know with air conditioning and. Nobody would have expected. <laughs> now no, you're asking for too much. Nobody would have expected New York to be like that this weekend. But um, you know that. And by the way, I was watching this. I was watching your feed when you did that, and I didn't even realize it was yours because um, I could. Your <laughs> yeah. name was cut off, um, yeah. and so I, if you recorded that on your FPV, I hope that thing's on YouTube. That was an amazing crash. So, I did. I do have it, and I'm going to put it up. Yeah, <laughs> I got to see that soon. That was so awesome. I'm going to send it to all three of my friends. Um, <laughs> So anyways, they, I mean, I think there's certain cases where spectators going to work. And I think the fishbowl and things like that proved it. Um, I do agree with you, though. They'd get to a point where I couldn't see them at all. But it was super cool, but I couldn't see them. My question for you, though, is, you know, knowing about what's going to happen in Hawaii as they do the next race, the next big race for this group, um, and they're looking at doing what they call 1,000s, uh, which is, you know, basically motor to motor. It's 1,000 millimeters. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That seems like it's big enough that you'd be able to see it pretty pretty well. Uh, yeah. Um, I don't know if they're going to be able to execute that at this point, to be honest with you. I mean, we had a lot of issues this weekend with getting stuff going there. Um, but 1,000 millimeters, that's, that's a lot more weight. That's a lot more uh, parts flying around. It's a lot more inertia. Um, I haven't seen a 1,000 millimeter race yet. Um, I mean, there's guys out there doing, I don't know if you guys, if you guys do some search on Google, look up the freedom class quadcopter. There's this guy in Australia that's making like a, I mean, this thing is like massive. The props are like three feet long. It's ridiculous. Um, and I, I don't know if that's going to be the thing that catches on because, um, you, you mentioned like Starcraft, right? So the thing about Starcraft is millions of people play it, right? So in order for it to grow and be, uh, the, for drone racing to grow and to be like that, we have to have millions of participants, right? So the entrance to this, you're going to spend two thousand, you know, twenty five hundred bucks in getting your quad, even if you get it ready to fly, and getting your quad, your goggles, batteries, chargers, radios, all the little bits and pieces start adding up. So the entrance cost to it um, is a little bit high. Whereas like a computer game, you know, you already have a computer. Most people already do. You know, you spend 50 bucks and now you're playing StarCraft. And then you can get involved in, in, in that sport per se, right? So I think the 1,000 millimeter class is going to be a little bit restrictive. I'm not sure that's going to hold up um, simply because of the, the cost involved in getting into it. Even for the pros, I mean, you're talking everything is much bigger. You need much bigger motors. So our motors right now might cost 25 bucks a pop. You need four of them, right? And then you need backups. Like I brought three backup quads with me fully built, ready to go. So now if I need three backup 1,000s, that's, you know, that's a $5,000 investment. I would, I mean, that's just throwing a number out there. But the motors are much more expensive and the frames are much more expensive. And they break. They're definitely going to break if they crash. Like these little ones might not break because there's not so much weight and inertia. But those 1,000s, you're definitely breaking something probably every time you crash. Yeah, absolutely. So cool. So you talked about the fact that you crashed yours there. Were you racing or just like a demo environment? No, I was racing. Um, well, it was actually it, it was kind of dumb on my part because the race was over. But I had gone so slow because it was my first <laughs> pack through the race. So then crossing the finish line, you had to go through this other obstacle. And I said, hmm. And that the, at the end of that obstacle was the, the, the fishbowl, right? 
So then I go, all right, let me see if I can take this line a little bit faster. Let me just go full throttle and, and, and see how I make this turn. So I went full throttle and I just wasn't ready for how fast it was going to come up. I was expecting to climb a little bit more and I just kind of froze there and I just saw the glass coming towards my face and I was just like, whatever, everything went black and I just took off the goggles and everyone was cheering because of the loud <laughs> bang that it made on the glass. And I knew that my quad was destroyed at that point. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> well, so I got to ask, man, you know, in the research that I've done for this and in, in the first person viewing there are strong, strong advocates tell you to sit down when you're flying. Are yeah. you a stander or a sitter? No, I'm a sitter. Um, I can stand and fly at the same time, but it takes a little bit getting used to because um, you'll see a lot of people actually move their head and dodge stuff as they're flying. Or like Brian's doing right now, they get we call that the owl neck. They start looking sideways or back or forwards um, just because they're so like immersed into what's going on. And if you're new and you're not expecting that and somebody puts a pair of goggles on you, we've seen people just, you know, fall flat on their butt because, you know, they, somebody pulls back and does a flip and they just like spaz out and just fall straight back like they can't <laughs> it. So, yeah, if you're definitely starting, oh. I would definitely say you have to sit down. But once you realize that it's not you in the quadcopter, then a lot of there's there's guys that fly better standing up, you know. Right on. So how did you do overall? Overall, we did horrible. <laughs> um, we wanted to to come out and practice uh, a lot. A lot of teams got, like I said, the race itself, the organization of the race wasn't um, as great as it could have been. Um, we wanted to have a lot more practice in. But uh, our team, obviously, I can't say we did horrible because there were a lot of teams that tried to get there, right? And out of everyone there, um, we were one of the 15 teams in the country to be able to go. So no, we didn't do horrible to get there, but we wanted our performance to be better at the actual race. Um, but you know, hats off to the guys that, that pulled it off. Everyone was on the same boat. We all had just one pack of practice and, um, we'll be at the next one, man. We're going to Indiana in September. Um, and we're going to practice even harder to, to do better on the next races that we have. So that's racing, man. Somebody's got to (laughs) lose. Well, speaking of uh, not losing, I saw a guy by the name of Zachary Thayer won the. Uh, yeah, he won fifty k. I think it was right. No, the breakdown for the races weren't. It, it wasn't like that. The fifty k were was split over uh, a couple of divisions. So, like the individual races which he won, I think he got ten k for that. And then the freestyle, which he got second place in, I think he got two k for that. And then. Yeah. They had team races and wings, so all that 50k was split up amongst uh, all those all those categories. Okay, well, not a bad still, day for flying drones. Though. No way, I'll take that any day of the week. Yeah, and I will say, by the way, as much as I came there a fan of the quad, I left a fan of the quad and the wing. So the wing, yeah. <laughs> I'm already I've already been researching. Like you know, I've I've seen a couple of wings that I can get for like under a hundred bucks and use all my same equipment I'm using on my quad. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm pumped because that was so cool. It's gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah. They're they are stupid fast. They're much faster than the quads. Um, I mean, you got wings out there that are doing 140 miles an hour um, with the same motors that the quads are using. Wow. Um, it's just a different skill set. You know, the quads are much more maneuverable. They can flip and roll and go through small uh, small gaps and all this stuff. But those wings are are something else. They're definitely fun to watch and they scream. Like they they were flying by, they definitely catch your attention. So, yeah, big ups to those guys. I have to build one soon. 
Yeah, right on, man. Cool. So uh, you you mentioned Zachary Anub. Is he well known in the industry, or was he kind of like a dark horse that kind of took the world by storm at this event? No way, man. Everybody knows Zach and their team. Their team, Big Whoop. Um, they were one of the first teams. Like I said, uh, there's teams out there that kind of know each other. They're from the same area, um, and they're one of those teams. So um, we definitely know those guys. We've flown with them a bunch. Um, Zach is definitely a huge competitor. He's won a bunch of um, uh, races before. Uh, he's he's been invited to like these the, the DRL, which is um, this the the race that they did in the stadium in Miami. I don't, I don't know if you guys saw that one. Um, he's definitely a well known person in the community. He designs his own frame, which is called the Shrike. Um, and it's an awesome frame and it's an awesome platform for racing. So yeah, definitely. He's one of those guys that we all know. Everybody knows who he is. So it was no surprise that he did so well. He's definitely, and he showed up. Well, obviously a lot of people didn't have a lot of practice. We only had maybe one or two tries, but he showed up on Saturday. So he didn't even have any practice. So then he went and laid down the second best qualifying time and then won the whole thing. So uh, yeah, but does he have like the world record on liftoff like you? No, I have that. Obviously, <laughs> that's that's the only thing that matters to me. That's um, right. <laughs> no, man, they they that's something that um, the Rotorsports Association. I think they said they were going to have for the race in Hawaii. They're going to have a virtual race, so they're supposed to be using their sim to to end there. I think they said they were going to have like a hundred thousand or some sort of point. Uh, uh, prize for that so hey being good on the sim might pay off in a couple of weeks yeah. so well, i'll let you know absolutely well cool man we've taken up a bunch of your time tonight and uh, i know it's late there in florida so we want to get you off the horn here but uh where can we find you next you talked about in september you're going to be in indiana yes so september labor day weekend september 1st through the 5th um we're gonna be at the multi-gp national championships um they've had a a, a, a um, I would say a much more rigorous qualifying schedule to get into that race. Um, so the the amount of competition that's going to be there, I think it's going to be even harder than Joe Nationals. Um, and it's going to be in Muncie, Indiana at the AMA headquarters. Um, and there's going to be, I think they said, uh, there's going to be like 120 pilots there too. Um, so it's going to be crazy out there. Uh, so yeah, the Gravity Goons, myself, uh, will be there competing. Um, I think uh, a lot of these guys that were at Joe Nationals, we're going to see them there as well. Um, so it's going to be awesome. I think awesome. their prize also is like 10000 for first place. Same hey, thing. That's all you, brother. Yep. Got to practice. I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go to work. Cool, man. So um, how do we find you online? I, I think I saw you on Facebook. You had your, uh, your, your, your Gravity Goons on there. What about Twitter or things like that? How can we hit yeah, you up? On- we're on Twitter on at, at Gravity Goons on Instagram. Same thing. I am Cruel X K R U E L X on Instagram. Um, you so you could also look up our website at gravitygoons.com and um, on YouTube. I'm um, Cruel. You can look up Cruel FPV or just Cruel, and you'll see us there. And then you'll find all the Gravity Goons stuff from there too. Awesome, man. Well, cool. Nelson, we certainly appreciate your time today. I know it's late, and we want to get you to your family. So let's shut down episode number 46 of The Hot Owl. With that, my name is Brent Piotti. And I'm Brian Carpenter. Thanks again, Nelson. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it.